Hi everyone, it's Molly here. This episode of The Ticker Tapes is an interview that I recorded with Kieran Sandwell at the end of November 2021. I'm really sorry to say that since recording this episode, Kieran has passed away. His passing was devastating news to everybody at the BHF, and especially to everybody who had met Kieran and had been so touched by his incredible kindness, his positivity and his generosity. This recording is available with the blessing of Kieran's partner, Sylvie. When I spoke to Sylvie about remembering Kieran, she said that he touched everyone's heart and that he was an amazing man and that we could all remember Kieran by getting outside, going swimming, going running and appreciating life and our health. Kieran and Sylvie met when he was doing his walk around the coastline of Britain and they managed to pack a lot of laughs into the short space of time that they had together. Sylvie also asked me to point everyone towards some of the musical recordings that they had made uh, as a band called The Pedanticles, and so I'll put some links to those in the episode notes. This episode is exactly as it was originally recorded and edited, and it goes out in memory of Kieran Samwell. Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Kieran whose heart condition led to him needing a heart transplant at the age of just 38. So I was on the list for a year and watching myself decrease gradually and I'd even written out my funeral, things like that. I'd, I'd eventually thought, well, this is it, this is it. I've, if I don't get the, the transplant, then I'm off, this is it. And I couldn't believe that it come to this just in my, in my 30s. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Kieran talks to me about growing up with a heart condition and the impact that had on his mental health, the before and after of receiving a new heart, and how he took that new heart on a 5,000-mile walk around the coast of Britain. Kieran, you've written before that you feel like you've had two lives. Could you start by telling me a bit about life number one? <laughs> well, life life number one um, started in 1970. I was born in 1970 with a congenital heart disease, um, which was transposition of the great arteries. And back in, in them days, a lot of babies didn't survive, but I was very lucky to have immediate surgery at four days old. Uh, the advances in medical uh, procedures are, is just, I, I've been born at a very, very convenient period. If I'd been born 10 years earlier, I would never have survived. So in fact, all of my life, I've, I've sort of surfed on the back of, of the advances in medical procedures. So, so I had my open heart surgery in, when I was three and a half. And um, I was uh, the first baby at Westminster Hospital to survive this thing. But since then, I found Great Ormond Street and other hospitals were doing doing the procedure and uh, and uh, quite successfully. But at the end of the operation, the consultant turned around to my mum and said, um, "Here he is. He's uh, we don't know. Take him home. We don't know how long he's going to survive, but he certainly won't live till he's 16. And that's how it was back then. It, it, I, no one had any ideas how long 
the surgery would last. And so, so that's what happened. I went home and tried to live a, a, a normal kiddie life. I'm, I'm a twin, so I had a my twin brother was sort of like my benchmark, if you like. Whenever I was tired and and um, out of breath, um, I was always comparing myself to him and trying to compete with him. But the nice thing about having a, a twin alongside this heart condition was that I'd he'd, he'd sit down with me whenever I was tired or whatever he would sit down with me so it wasn't a completely lonely experience but um so in the it was in the 70s I was having checkups and I had endocarditis when I was seven which put me in hospital for six weeks over Christmas which was you know quite a, quite a, a, a bewildering experience for a, for a seven-year-old but mm. equally I came out with a massive sack of presents <laughs> <laughs> so you know it was it was kind of lots of attention but it was mm. kind of negative attention in, in a way when you look back at it um but and endocarditis that's where you it's an infection of the inner lining of the heart that's right yeah so mm. um so that I was on a drip for six weeks over Christmas and I remember they decorated the the drip with all tinsel and everything and um, I didn't really realize how ill I was I think because yeah. I think the first few weeks in hospital I wasn't up and around I was I was in bed so I, I remember Christmas day that the toy of the year was evil Knievel which maybe some of the older listeners might, <laughs> might remember <laughs> but I was allowed off my drip for an hour so I could play with this toy in the in the uh in the day room with my family and it was, it was a joyous moment I just look back at that and think wow I was free from the drip <laughs> but obviously I got better and and yeah I got out of hospital and uh and yeah carried on trying to trying to do what everybody else is doing but uh obviously with a heart condition um everybody's worried about you all the time and the school didn't let me do games and uh PE and things like that to sit out things and it was a very confusing time as a, as a child to sort of be labelled as different. You want to be in with everybody. And um, and that sort of carried on into secondary school as well. I was sort of in a, there was a, a line of people lining up for games, whatever it was, PE. And then there was a line of people that had a sick note. And I was always in the sick note queue because <laughs> I wasn't allowed to do it. And um to be labelled, it was it was quite difficult difficult to sort of deal with. But but then others came up to me and said, "You lucky thing, you got out of rugby today. That was horrible." <laughs> <laughs> so there's pros and cons to it all. But uh, I think it, it, yeah, the start of the second year, out of absolutely nowhere, one day after school, I just got in and I ran up the stairs as I normally try and do, and um, I had a real pain in my chest and real pain down my right hand side, and I thought. I didn't bang my elbow and I was trying to think what on earth is this and over the next few minutes I got gradually worse and thought wow there's something not wrong there's something not right here I was uh I was just about to set set down and do my homework and, uh, and I thought no there's something very very wrong and I went downstairs on my bum oh, down the stairs so I thought I'm feeling a bit weird and I walked into the living room where my mum was and she took look took one look at me and just went oh, God, what's happened to you? And I said, Mum, I don't feel very well. And I'd gone pale. And uh, I told her my symptoms. And, and my mum was a nurse, and she she knew exactly what was going on. And um, she called an ambulance. And um, 
yeah, I was I was having a heart attack, and I just it was horrible, um, a pain in my chest. And I remember turning to my mum, who was crouching by the side of me, and I said, "Mum, I really do want to cry." Mm. She said, "Well, cry then." I said, "It's so painful and and um, bewildering as well." There was I just remember people coming into the living room. You know, having a look, it was like probably my brothers and sisters and whoever was in the house at the time. It was always a full house, and um, and my poor twin brother was kneeling down by the couch, and yeah. So then I was obviously taken off blue lighted to local hospital and um, diagnosed. I'd had a mild heart attack, and uh, and I remember after you know three or four hours of lots of junior doctors coming in, they'd never seen a thirteen year old have a heart attack, and people wanting to have a listen to me heart and all this sort of thing. And uh, I think it was about three weeks I was in hospital for while they did endless tests and things like that. And I remember saying to my twin brother, don't tell anyone I've had a heart attack. Just tell them I've got the flu or something. I I just didn't want to stand out and I certainly didn't Mm. want to be... I knew it was a massive thing that had just happened to me, not only physically, but I knew it was going to change everything, you know, and... um, once again, labelled as a guy who's just had a heart attack, you know, I, I did, just didn't want any of that. But you know, you just have to get on with it. And so, and but I, I recovered. I carried on, and I, I gradually got fitter as as the years went on in teenage years. And but my my confidence was absolutely shattered at that point um, from it. And um, you know, before I was, I was always the show off. I was always the one that was doing stupid things and. My brother was always, always like the straight man, if you like, of our double act, and um, and yeah, I just sunk into sort of a, a very quiet sort of period in later school. And, what um, was it about the experience that kind of caused that drop in self confidence? Was it the fact that it made you more aware of having a heart condition, or was it to do with the way that you thought that maybe other people saw you? What was that? Yeah, I, I think. I think, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it was up till that point, because nothing had happened since the age of seven up till, what was that, 13. I think in your head, you think you're okay. Hmm. And although I was just going for yearly checkups, which was just as a lot of congenital heart patients and, you know, it's just an X-ray ECG and, you know, the doctor looks over you and once a year, you forget about it unless something actually happens. And so for quite a few years, I think I... I got stronger physically and I thought, well, maybe mentally I thought there was, you know, this was just a a, a minor thing that actually having a congenital heart disease wasn't such a, a major thing after all. But then having a having a heart attack, yeah, maybe that was, it was still, I was still in shock mm. that actually I have got a, a heart condition and it's not, it's not a minor condition. It's only later on when, when I got transferred to, um, I went to the, uh, the Brompton when I was 18 to adult care. That that's when you started um, yeah, realizing you have to take an interest. <laughs> sort of, and then that's how it was. It, it just felt I was not very interested in the heart condition. It was something I wanted to forget, and um, and it and it caused a lot of problems, you know, mentally for me because I didn't want to have to take tablets and I didn't want to be. People look at you and say, "Don't go mad." I wanted to be like everybody else, you know. Mm. I can imagine how unfair it must feel that for everybody else at that age, they can just take their heart for granted completely. 
you never ever have to think about it and you were being forced to think about it yes it, it was it was something that I had to take on board all the time from that point onwards when when mum was saying don't go mad I had to listen to her this time where before it was mm. you know you just think well I know how to manage my condition but having something as shocking as that happen to you you thought well maybe I should start listening now and and maybe I should you know start to pay attention and and yeah it really it sort of drifted mentally I was I was not very good in in late teens um because of that I mm. sunk into depression I was unemployed for three years I had no idea what to do where to go you know people were out at work and drinking and going on big holidays and doing what 18 to 21 year olds do you know and and I was very lonely you know when I look back at it that I just thought, well, I'm still standing out and I don't want to stand out. And mm. um, and then I think it was 21, I had two mini strokes completely out of the blue, which are little t- TIAs, mm. um, which was bewildering to start with again, because just like the heart attack, I'd had a period of time where not really much had happened with my heart. And although I was, you know, being a little bit more careful Nothing actually physically had happened to my heart. So I'd gone to check up after check up and they've said, you're fine, Kieran, you're fine. And, you know, I'd gone past the 16 stage that they'd said I wouldn't get to. So so there was, and, you know, going into adult care was, was different as well. So so when I had the two mini strokes uh, at the age of 21, it was sort of almost reinforcing <laughs> that you have to think about your heart and, off the back of them two TIAs, I was put on warfarin, which um, I knew would be for life. And so this was even more reinforcement that you have a heart condition here and you have to take, you know, take it seriously. And um, so after that, there was a, a period of, of um, time again where not much had really happened. The warfarin was fine. I went for my regular blood tests and um, I try to sort of, uh, you know, live a normal life. I, I managed to get some some work, and yeah, and um, but when I when I was back at work, I started having different rhythms. This is a brand new sort of section of my life where arrhythmias started taking over in my mid mid to late twenties, and some of them turned out quite quite dangerous in the end. So, so the doctors had said where. It started out as just atrial fibrillation, and then I'd had went into SVT and all sorts of things, and uh, was kept a bit more of a closer eye on in my in my mid to late twenties. And um, but again, I still didn't ever realise that that things were bad. But in my in my mid to late twenties, the, the arrhythmias really took over, and uh, and that later on brought brought in what I now know as, as end-stage heart failure. And so by my mid-30s, yeah, I was going for regular checkups that were once yearly, were now six-monthly, and the doctors were saying, we're keeping an eye on your pumping chamber. It's 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 okay. But they never turned around to me and said, You've got a real pro- we've got a real problem here. They were just sort of monitoring it. And um, eventually the, the arrhythmias got, quite regular and quite well I suppose quite quite dramatic really one of the times I had to be uh, I think four four times I was cardioverted 
back into sort of rhythm because it had it, gone so haywire. And so they eventually thought, well, the best thing to do is to have a defibrillator fitted. So that was when I was 36. And they also then started talking and saying things like, well, Kieran, what you're on. By then I was on all sorts of antiarrhythmia drugs and uh, all sorts of other bits and bobs had happened. And they they turned around to me at age 36, age 37, I think it was, and said, Kieran, this is, um, you know, you have to realise this, this is your best. Today is always going to be your best medical day. You're deteriorating and uh, you're on the best medication, the best and most we can give you. And um, really the only thing left, there's not much we can do. And I just remember them saying there's there's not much we can do and that just sort of echoed around the room at the time and up to that point i don't think i really realized how serious the the heart the heart mm. failure had become like i said you just build your world around it and at the time whenever i went shopping my my wife held the bags because i was getting out of breath but i just thought i was getting old i'm getting old and i've got a heart condition mm. You know, I didn't really twig that there was anything particularly wrong. So it was kind of a bit naive and maybe a bit on my part, me just trying to blot it out, because that seemed the easiest thing to do is to just go day to day and blot it out. But uh, eventually I had to face up to it. And and they said, um, the only option left really is, is a transplant. And I thought, well, well, let's, you know, that that's something there's, there's a carrot at the end of it all. There's something there to, to at least have something to look forward to. Um, and so my mind actually really focused on, I want a transplant now, because mm. the carrot at the end was uh, the most delicious carrot you could ever think of, <laughs> in that it would give me a health that I'd never had before, uh, you know, um, fitness that I'd never had before. You know, there were days, there were horrible, horrible days when I, I I remember just trying to boil a kettle in the morning. I'd got up and I always made sure I had got up and had a shower, which in itself was tiring. Mm. And then I'd have to sit down on the toilet afterwards to get my breath back. And then there was, you know, you had to dry yourself, which was, you know, um, was exhausting. And I'd end up going back to bed after showering because I was so tired and then I remember thinking, right, I have to go and make a cup of tea. So, and this was the most, the worst I'd probably got um, on the list really was this particular day where I was so utterly exhausted. I couldn't stand up waiting for the kettle to boil. And I was thinking, this is silly. This is, and I think that day I actually, I remember putting my arms on the um, worktop while I'm waiting for the kettle to boil and put my forehead on my arms and I just blubbed and I blubbed for I don't know how long because I think it, at that point it actually dawned on me oh I really am ill aren't I yeah and and up till that point maybe they'd just been <laughs> blind optimism you know or or a, a sense of denial that things can't be that bad you know I can still do this I can still do this and and I made a point always of trying to do some exercise, trying to get out of the house and walking around the block. And, and even even that was demoralizing when, you know, you'd have everyone was faster than you. The whole world had speeded up. You know, if I was getting the, a bus into town, 
everything was fast. It was, come on, give me your money. Come on, come on, come mm. on. Me getting mm. from A to B. And it must be how, you know, older people feel when they, when they, the world speeds up and mm. it's, it's quite bewildering. And I'd, I'd suddenly come into this world, you know, suddenly arrived at this world within a space of a year or two of, of the heart failure getting worse where the whole world had speeded up and I was, yeah, I couldn't do things. And the list of things that I couldn't do was really mounting. And, and I remember that day when I was making the cup of tea and think, it all dawned on me then, I really am ill. I really do need this transplant. So I was on the list for about, um, for a year. And um, watching myself decrease gradually. And, and it, I'd even written out my funeral um things like that i i eventually thought well this is it this is it i've got if if i don't get the the transplant then i'm off this is it and i couldn't believe that it come to this just in my in my 30s mm. um how optimistic did you feel that you would get the transplant i mean obviously you were planning for the worst but was there mm. part of you that thought no, this can't happen. I, I will get it. I'll, I'll be okay. Yeah, it's, it's just, I think that there was always that, that the carrot was, was, God, imagine if I do get the transplant and it all works perfectly. And I, I read books of people who'd had transplants and, and, you know, it's not, it's not a, a complete cure. I knew that it would, it presents a completely different set of medical problems. But the thing that I really, really wanted was just imagine not being able to think about your your health just just be able to get up and do whatever you want to do like most people have taken for granted and I remember talking to a friend of mine saying you know it, it's an odd it's an odd thing because you kind of want yourself to get worse <laughs> so that then you have more chance of getting the transplant if you see what I mean yeah, because, because of the lack of organs. You're living in a limbo where you need to be well enough to have the operation, but sick enough yeah. that there's no other option. Exactly, exactly. And, and it, I said it's the most perverse thing that for the first time in my life, I actually want myself to be getting worse quicker mm. so that then I can get to the one thing that's going to save me, which is the transplant. And and even during, during that period, um, I... I knew people that were on the list and, and one of my friends died on the list. He was he was waiting for a heart transplant and, and sadly he died. And um so I knew that, that this was um I, I just had to get to that transplant. I, I knew I had to get there and um and there were two false alarms, which is when they um they bring you in to check you over whilst they're checking over the, the organ. And, and sadly, the organ wasn't as perfect as first thought. So I had two false alarms where I was blue lighted up to Patworth, and um, and they 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 they're quite draining mentally. Yeah. Um, but but equally, after the second one, I thought, no, this is going to happen. There was there was a a kind of a sense that no, I really feel that this is going to happen. So, first of July, two thousand and nine. I got a call at six in the morning um, and they said, Kieran, we may have a heart. We'd like to come in. And I thought, oh, here we go again. Third time lucky, maybe. And um, 
yeah, so I went went into Papworth and um, my surgeon came in and said, yeah, it all looks as though this is going work. This is going to be good, Kieran. I think we're going to go, go ahead with it. I just remember thinking, wow. And as I was saying goodbye to my, my wife at the time, she said to me that um, as they wheeled me out from the ward to go to the theatre, she said, this amazing grin came over your face that she wasn't expecting. She thought it'd be a really emotional, sad goodbye sort of thing when, when you have a, you know, a parting before, before surgery. She said, I couldn't believe it. You just started grinning. And I thought, well, that's, that's, I just remember feeling an immense sense of relief because I thought one way or the other, this is, this is either going to work or it's not. So I'm finally, it's either, I'm finally out of the mess that I've been in for my first part of my life or it works and mm. I start my second part of the life. And so and you were sort it, of beyond fear at that point. Absolutely. I, funnily enough, as they were prepping me and I kind of knew eventually the, the general anaesthetic would go in and, and um, I remember saying, the last thing I said to myself was see you on the flip side, which I think is something from Apollo 7, Apollo 13 or something. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I remember saying to myself. I was so, by that point, I thought this is going to work and this, and I'm, I'm a great believer nowadays in you know, approaching things medically with the right mindset can mm. it, it, it improves your chances so much. And and um, yeah, so then my my first memories after transplant was um, under morphine. I had all sorts of illusions and things and strange things going on. But um, I think it was the third or fourth day. The nurse sitting well, one to one care and. And she said, are you all right there, Kieran? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, oh, you've just been grinning to yourself for a while. And I went, I've only gone and done it, haven't I? And she went, what do you mean? What have you done? I said, I've done it, haven't I? I've got through the transplant. She said, well, you've, you're, you're, you know, you're its early stages yet. But yes, it's beginning to look okay. You're looking fine. Everything's looking good. So yes. And then from that point onwards, yeah, pulled all the tubes out. I wanted to get down the gym. <laughs> It was, I was just raring to go. And, um, and this yeah, was, was um, um, this was the start of life number two, heart number two, exactly. life number two. Yeah, it was, there was a, there was one particular morning at Papworth. Papworth used to be in a, a lovely location. It's actually on a, a Cambridge campus, but it used to have a, a lovely lake where birds and uh, swans and that were, a, it was a lovely, lovely area. And I looked out onto this lake and, um, the last lot of tubes came off me and they said, Kieran, you're free to go to the toilet if you want. And um, I remember that morning just looking out over on the lake and I, I tears were falling down. And I thought, I can't believe I've done it. I've actually done it. This is me now. I'm standing. All I have to do now is just get better. Just get out of hospital, get better. And I've gone and done it. I can't believe it. And I, I knew immediately that it was all going to work out. And um and well, it has. So this is the start of my second life, which yeah, which is um, and, and so did the heart feel different in your chest? Absolutely. From from listening to heart, if you've had a heart condition all your life, but if you've had arrhythmia problems, you're so used to listening to the heart all the time. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is like a drum machine because it's not gone out of sync at all. This is absolutely perfect, and just 
grinning to myself. I could feel it. It was so loud as well. And that's because I'd got used to a weakened heart and the, the beat, my big beat round the body was was more of a pfft. And nowadays, now after the transplant, it became a big boom. And mm. um, it was powerful. And, and the noise and everything about it made me feel powerful. I thought, wow. And um, my, my friend had said to me, he'd given this quite good analogy, he said, it's like you've gone into a, a, a garage with a really clapped out old car and they've fitted a Porsche engine into it. <laughs> and now you've come out absolutely smooth and you know, running on on a high. And I thought, well, that's pro- that's what it felt like because after the leads had all come out and you, I mean, there was still muscle conditioning and lots and lots of things to do. You know, my body had basically deteriorated so much that there was nothing of me, you know. Mm. So uh, in all my excitement, I, um, down at the gym, I think I was in the gym after nine days, I, um, I was cycling on the cycling machine and I really ripped all the muscles in my leg, and I had to, <laughs> they had to get, take me off the bike. They said, yeah, "Slow they down, used Kieran." To you being know. used anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I kind of was learning all over again. Now, right, I've got this new. It's like a brand. It is a brand new body. Right. How do I make it work? <laughs> um, it was a. It was a lovely experience, and and I left Papworth. Nineteen days, I was in hospital, and I put the rucksack on. And I walked out with a rucksack on because I hadn't carried a bag for two or three, four years even. And I made a point of, no, I want to carry something out. And, um, yeah, it was just incredible. And obviously, I'm, I'm painting a very rosy picture of transplant. There's, <laughs> there's lots of things you have to take on board with with the new set of tablet regime. You're immune suppressed. There's a different lifestyle. There's lots and lots of like you, you are replacing one set of medical condition, uh, one medical condition with another, and um, so I had all that to sort of adhere to. I had to had a bag of tablets that were the size of my torso. It was huge, this bag, and that was one month supply of tablets. Mm. And, um, and but none of that scared me. I just thought this is great. I want to get fit, and I want to do all the things that I was stopped doing, and over. In heart failure, certainly, and maybe over the course of my life, one, I'd made a list of all the times when my heart had stopped me doing things, and especially in heart failure, there was there were lots of things where I thought, oh, I can't do that, oh, I can't do that, and that was that became my sort of program of events, if you like, because <laughs> I, I wanted to go back and do the things that stopped me before, but then obviously I had a now an open world of of exciting possibilities of what I could do with this. Yeah, it's a kind of reverse bucket list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, so I set set doing that. But first first thing straight out of um, of getting home was was walking and getting fit walking. And I, I remember putting up on Facebook at the time saying. I've just done something monumental today. I've overtaken another human being whilst walking. And although it sounds rather silly, I had three or four years of everybody walking faster than me. And suddenly I could overtake someone. And I thought, I'm going to start running. So, And it hurt. And it, it, I pulled muscles and I got injuries and, and that sort of thing. But 
actually, I remember saying at the time, propelling myself faster, I felt like um, I had this stupid grin on my face. I keep talking about stupid grin, <laughs> but it, it was like that. I, I remember saying, I, I must look like a dog out of a window in a car. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know? the faster I went, the more I was enjoying it. The more, more of this inane grin came over my face. I couldn't believe it. And so I applied for the London Marathon thinking, oh, you know, who knows? It was a bit of a lottery, really. And I got a place and I got a place in the 2012 London Marathon, which gave me nine months to get from couch to marathon runner. And um, yeah, that focused my mind. And I remember <laughs> that that whole winter was, I have to go out, I have to go out. And um, I did a training plan. And so within two and a half years of the transplant, I was standing on the start line of the London Marathon and I just couldn't believe it. And it's incredible. It, it, yeah. The transplant completely and utterly changed everything for me. And and it was a huge motivator for me to to make sure I was doing some real good with it as well. So the story of, of my me with the British Heart Foundation started actually before the transplant. When I was in heart failure, um, a researcher called Sonia had said to me, can I do some research on your heart? So she, we went, I did an MRI scan and, and things like that. And I'd said to her, look, when I have my transplant, do you want my old heart to do research on? And she said, yes. So so I donated my old heart to Royal Brompton. That's where it's still sitting now. And um, for, you know, for, for medical medical reasons. and. Uh, medical research and um, I know that Sonia had published a paper you know because she'd had the old Kieran's heart in in me and now she actually had the heart to sort of do research on she was able to complete a paper and um, some good had come out of that and and that was a real motivator for me as well just wanting to this this new life wasn't just a wasn't just for me it wasn't a selfish thing I could do some real good with this. I could really help people. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now back to the conversation. How many years ago now was that transplant? The transplant was 12 and a half years ago now for me. Yeah. And it seems like yeah. you've kind of kept that sense of appreciation of what your body can do ever since then, like to this day. Absolutely. To this day. It really is. It's, I, I still, uh, I still can't believe it when I, when, when I'm running, I still can't believe I can run. Um, my latest thing this year is I, cause I've, I, I live next to the sea. So I've started sea swimming which is just it's bonkers in itself because it's cold and you try telling yourself it's not cold but it is cold yeah are you are you still um, going out it's november now are you still going out like yeah. a woolly hat and oh my gosh yeah <laughs> absolutely i went out last weekend wow <laughs> <laughs> so i'm still i'm not i'm i'm not trying to push it to its extremes i guess uh maybe i am but it, it's it's just trying to uh, appreciate that I've been given this this fitness and I, I still want to to use it and it's still a an absolute delight and a privilege to have 
this new body. It's still my body, but it's it's my my beautiful donor who, you know, put her, put herself on the, on the donor register and has gifted me this heart. Uh, is the main reason why I've had all this lovely twelve years of fitness and uh and the sense of possibilities are still there with me and so i'd in my 20s i'd i'd um i'd had two two guys talking and one said to the other do you know what i've always wanted to do i've always wanted to walk around the coast of britain and so that stayed with me and i thought well i can't do that i've got this heart i'll never be able to do it and um it always stayed with me and then in 2017 which was seven years after transplant. I'd done the, I'd done walking. I'd mastered walking. I'd mastered, you know, running. I'd even tried flying, you know, out of an aeroplane with a parachute. And <laughs> so I thought, actually, yeah, long distance walking. This sounds great. And so set of circumstances happened that enabled me to free me up to be able to, to do it. And so I thought, I'm going to um, walk around the coast of Britain. So that's what I did. I set off As in you do. 2017. <laughs> 2017. I planned it thoroughly. Um, well, I didn't plan it thoroughly. I planned it as much as I could, mm. and um, and set off from British Heart Foundation, and and uh, yeah, five thousand miles went round the whole coast of Britain, and the, one of the purposes was just to that was an itch that had stayed with me since I was twenty. But I think I. You know, some of it as well was that I know I've got a really happy story here, and 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 I know that when I was in my doldrums and really down about my heart condition, when I heard stories of people who were doing well, that was that made me determined. It changed, and I think that's what you need. You need you need some real good, happy stories, happy outcomes, and and, and I thought I can share that. And at the same time, I get to to do this silly challenge, um, but also I, I'm raising money for the British Heart Foundation as well. So I, I raised fifteen thousand pounds in the end. And you you were actually able to go and see your heart, weren't you? <laughs> yes. Which is There's an experience many... that not many people will have had. <laughs> There's been many bizarre days, really, in my <laughs> life. I think that has to go up there, right at the very top. Yeah. So I think it was seven years after transplant. I wondered what had happened to my heart. So I'd, I'd got in touch with with Sonia, and and she said, "No, no, your heart's still here at Brompton." And she said, "Why don't you come in and and have a look at it?" And I thought, "Wow, that sounds really bizarre." So so we we did a, we did some publicity. We did some publicity shots and and things like that to try and. Uh, raise awareness and and things but the the overall day was very strange because I was in a room there was lots of people looking at me wondering how I'd react they were also very interested in what someone's heart would look like as well um and so then there was this big reveal moment when the veil came off and it was in a dish and the and my whole body was engulfed in goosebumps and I just mm. went oh and I, I just stared at it and said, hello, heart. <laughs> Didn't know what else to say. It was a very, very strange experience to, to, to having had seven years at that point of really good health and fitness to, to sort of look at the, uh, the evil heart <laughs> that, that, that stopped me all these years, you know, and, um, it was a very strange experience of meeting it and 
And um, and it was, it was strange as well meeting people who had cared for my old heart, just like I was caring for this new heart, um, my donor's heart. And um, yeah, it was a very, very, very strange day. Not many people get to meet their old heart. <laughs> um, and what, um, you know, having walked around the coast of Britain, <laughs> um, which is a, a pretty incredible achievement. Have you got any other big plans? Like what what's the future um, for you and your new heart? Actually, once I finished, I didn't want to stop when I was walking around. I, I, I'd had an experience where I'd met so many lovely, kind people for such a long period of time. And the, the kindness of, of strangers is it gets addictive after a while. It really does, because most of our day, we don't really see that, do we? Mm, we, we have our own yeah. bubble of family and friends and work colleagues and it's only every now and then does a stranger actually do something kind towards you and you go, wow. Um, but my all my days when I was on the walk was was filled were filled with that. There were so many stories. I'm currently writing my book of the walk, which um which would is quite interesting going back onto it. Um I still want to go round again, you know. I want to go round <laughs> as I keep calling it backwards. I was gonna say, yeah, go anti clockwise or clockwise, <laughs> whichever one you didn't do. Yeah, I did it. I I did it. I walked it clockwise. No, I didn't. Anti-clockwise. So this time around, I do it clockwise. But um, I'm just very, very grateful. I'm still here twelve and a half years later. Someone who um, was at death's door in their thirties, but also for someone who was told in their infancy that they wouldn't even reach teenage years to reach. I'm now the grand old age of fifty-one. So for me to be 51, it, it's bonkers. I know it sounds really strange to say that, but I can't believe I've reached this age. And so I'm almost doing a lot of, you know, like children, they always say, I'm four and a half, and they <laughs> emphasis on the half. I'm doing that now as an adult <laughs> because I, I can't believe, you know, I'm 51. And, and having that attitude to life is a real real healthy one and I really hope that continues because as long as this transplant you know as long as this transplanted heart still carries on I'll I'll be delighted I really will and how how does it feel now looking back on life number one you said earlier it almost feels like that was a dream it is it does feel that happened to someone else I think I think the older you get the more I think most people, you know, in older life, say in their, well, even my age, 50s, are sort of still feel 18. Their brain is still saying I'm 18, but their body is now saying they're 51. And, and it kind of is, it's similar to that, is that I I look back at that and I, I know that that was Kieran, but because it was such a monumental change in my 30s, that the, the further away I get from it, the, the harder it is to remember how ill I was. Mm. and and how desperate i was for the transplant and and also how you when you when you have a, a long period of good health it's very difficult to to remember bad health i don't know whether that makes sense but mm. when yeah so it, it is hard to to remember back but i know that that life one was really really tough and uh, in a, in a way it was a very lonely experience for my generation of adults born with heart, conge heart congenital heart disease because we didn't have an internet or anything like that. We all kind of suffered alone 
like I didn't know anyone else who had a heart condition all the way through my life until the internet come along. Come mm. along. Mm. And I think that was in my 30s. And then now you've got communities and charities all over the world that link people together and you've got a, a great support network, uh, much, much better than, than, than we had back in the day. So the, the internet has brought a lot of good things, you know, not a lot of good support for people who, you know, say who are in, in, in heart failure and not their prognosis really might, might not be that good. They've, they've got a better support system than what I did, what I mm. had because, because of that. So it is, it is hard. I, I, I know that the transplant won't last. I know that something will get me in the end. We all know something's going to get us in the end, but, um, but it's so much better. My life is so much better from, from having the transplant. Um, um, yeah, and I want, I want to try and sh- uh, share that with people. The, 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 uh, there are people with, with very, very good, happy stories. Mm. And that's, mm. uh, certainly with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, God, we really do need happy stories, don't we? Mm. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> do you find yourself, if you meet somebody new, do you talk to them about it? Or like at what point do you talk to them about it? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, do you know, I do talk about it very quickly. I, I, it is a, it is a, a very, I'm very, very proud of, of what's happened to me. And, um, and I do want to share that joy. I think it, it's not, the importance of being normal isn't, I, I don't want to, I don't want that to be taken as I want to just be, part of the gang because no one wants to be just part of a gang everyone wants to shine uniquely and I think I know that the transplant with me is my unique selling point (laughs) (laughs) so I'm very proud so I I tell people very very quickly that I've you know I had a transplant and I often get introduced as Kieran he's had a transplant right (laughs) (laughs) so I don't mind that either it's 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 not as I want to just sort of be like everybody else, I'm very proud of, of what's happened to me. And yeah. And I usually say to people, what advice would you give to somebody in a similar situation? But I was wondering as well, what would you say to Kieran from Life One, if you could? Ooh, um, I would say to Kieran in Life One that that you had the right you had the right determination that there was always going to be something there was always something at the end of it i knew that there would be something at the end of it i knew i trusted implicitly all my doctors and nurses and i knew that uh, always holding on to something at the end was something it was always in me so to carry on doing that no matter how bleak it actually looked there will always be something coming at the end of it. And um, and I think that goes through anyone facing any sort of health crisis is that if you can try and look at the positive of what, what the best outcome could possibly be, because when, when you're bombarded with health facts and, and all this sort of thing, when you're actually ill, it's very it's very difficult to sort of see the the benefits of it all. So say you're facing surgery, you'd be worried about all the bad things that possibly could happen. And, and that's quite natural because that's more of a powerful, it's much more powerful. But if you can focus on the end goal, which is 
I'll be able to do this, I'll be able to do that, and maybe even make lists of things when I'm better, I want to do this, and have something to look forward to is always what even Kieran won always knew Kieran one it sounds like different versions of me doesn't it <laughs> yeah it sounds like you've been upgraded <laughs> upgraded <laughs> like yeah. you're a robot <laughs> yeah a Kieran version too uh, but I think I think I always knew that like I was saying the carrot that so long as there was something there that I could look forward to if I had a period of good health I, I definitely carried you know I I, I grasped that and said no no things are good things are good mm. and I think mm. looking looking at the positive of something even when things are looking a bit bleak uh, is is just the way to way to be it's very hard to do but mm. I found making lists actually making lists of things I wanted to do really focused me that when I'm when I'm better I want to do this when I'm better I'm going to do this and, mm. and that sort of thing but never give up hope never give up hope We've got a marvellous NHS here. We've got some fantastic consultants and doctors and we've got the wonderful British Heart Foundation as well, looking after <laughs> us all. <laughs> Kieran, that's great. Thank you so much for talking us through all of that. I feel very inspired. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> for more information about conditions like Kieran's, visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. Remember, if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can call the BHF Heart Helpline and speak to a nurse between 9 and 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300-330-3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. Thank you for listening and join us next time on The Ticker Tapes. <laughs>